even our sin, our lost and ruined estate, has been made the means in the hand of God of manifesting to us the excellencies of his character. What a stunning thought that the worst that is in us, the most miserable that we can be, nevertheless, because of the wisdom and power of God, has been made the means of demonstrating, showing, evidencing the excellencies of the divine character. This is part of Spurgeon's introduction to a sermon simply entitled, As Thy Days, So so Shall Thy Strength Be, quoting Deuteronomy 33, 25, his text. It was delivered on Sabbath morning, the 22nd of August, 1858, at the Music Hall in the Royal Surrey Gardens. As we work our way through the sermons that Spurgeon preached, we've reached sermons 206 to 212 this week, and each week we select one particular sermon that we hope will be of particular benefit, and it's this one this week, 210 in the New Park Street Pulpit, Volume 4. Now, you can listen to uh, more of these if you follow the podcast. We'd be glad if you'd do that. You can get a weekly update from www.mediagratii.org slash podcasts where you can sign up for a newsletter or you can follow at Reading Spurgeon on Twitter. That's at Reading Spurgeon. This particular sermon is meant to be a real encouragement to God's people. Spurgeon wants us to understand that our frailties make room for the Holy Spirit to correct them. Our wanderings make room for the Good Shepherd, that he may seek us and bring us back. We do not love nights, he says, but we do love stars. We do not love weakness, but we do bless God for the promise that is to sustain us in our weakness. We do not admire winter, but we do admire the glittering snow. We must shudder at our own trembling weakness, but we still do bless God that we are weak because it makes room for the display of his own invincible strength in fulfilling such a promise as this. And that gives you then the pattern that Spurgeon is going to follow in the course of this sermon. He's going to notice or take note of, take account of the self-weakness which is implied in the text. Secondly, he's going to come to the great promise of the text and then he'll draw one or two inferences from it before he concludes. First then, the self-weakness that is hinted at in the text. He says, using the same imagery, if this promise is like a star, you know there's no seeing the stars in the daytime when we stand here upon the upper land. We must go down a deep well and then we shall be able to discover them. So it is that you can only see the brightness of some promises when they're shining in the darkness. And he asks then, where have we proved our own weakness? In what seasons of darkness do we demonstrate just how frail we are? And he identifies a number of them. There is, first of all, duty. Then there's suffering. Then there's progress. Then there is temptation. And in each of those periods, we find our weakness written large. So, the day of duty. In preparing for the pulpit, he asks, how often do we discover our weakness when a hundred texts exhibit themselves and we know not which to choose? And when we have selected our subject, distracting thoughts come in, and when we would concentrate our minds upon some holy topic, we find they are carried hither and thither, driven about like minds of children by every wind of thought. And when we bow our knees to seek the Lord's help before we preach, how often does our tongue refuse to give utterance to the earnestness of our hearts? 
it may be an encouragement to other preachers to know that Spurgeon struggled in sermon preparation. Now, it may not be quite the same struggle as most of us. Uh, You might say, I don't have the problem of a hundred texts offering themselves and me not knowing which to choose. I have the problem of not being able to think of a single text or not even able to work with even one of them. But for Spurgeon, in accordance with his gift, his problem was this superfluity of riches, this abundance of, uh, of ideas and possibilities that would rush in upon him. And I think most of us would say, well, we recognise the next bit, the distractions, the difficulties in concentration, the, the struggles in prayer, and then not just in preparation, but delivery. Here in this pulpit, he says, I've often learned my weakness when words have fled from me and thoughts have departed too. And when that zeal which I thought would have poured itself forth like a cataract has trickled forth in unwilling drops like a sullen stream, the source of which does almost fail and which seems itself as if it longed to be dried up and dead. That's the the awfulness of the preacher's experience when uh, perhaps something that seems so lively and engaging and compelling in the study seems so dry and, and distressing and dull in the pulpit. And it's not just the sermon, it's your own heart. Something that you'd thought and hoped would engage you and delight you just doesn't seem to have any impact upon you. In the day of duty, then, we realise our weakness. And again, perhaps more visibly, when we come into the day of suffering. Spurgeon says he thinks there are very few men who could bear the tithe of the tenth of the suffering that many women endure without exhibiting a hundred times as much impatience. Women suffer and they suffer well, but most of us who are gifted with strong constitutions and have little sickness, we have to chasten ourselves that what little sickness we have to contend with is born with so little resignation and with so much impatience, that we're so ready to repine, to complain, so prepared to bow our heads and wish we were dead because a little pain is rending our body. Perhaps you know that yourself by experience. If you are usually healthy, How quickly, when you become ill, do you begin to wonder if you'll ever be made well again? Or perhaps if you're generally not well, if that's more the the pattern of your experience, you can become very cast down on account of those things. And says Spurgeon, that man who's never been sick does not know his weakness, his want of patience and of endurance. Then again, something else that will prove your weakness is progress. Spurgeon says, I've sometimes thought I would try to have more faith, but I've found it very hard to keep as much as I had. I have thought I will love my Saviour more, and it was right that I should strive to do so, but when I sought to love him more, I found that perhaps I was going backward instead of forward. His point is that even though our desires might be right, even though our labours may be appropriate, we actually cannot advance in the way that we might wish. So when we try to grow in grace, when we seek to run the heavenly race, we find that we actually slip and slide, we trip, we stumble, we struggle in order to in, in making any real progress. We go backwards very easily, but forwards is hard. And then if neither of these three things will prove your weakness, Christian, try another. See what you are in temptation, says Spurgeon. And perhaps if we've been able to shrug off the first three ourselves, this is the one where we have to say, Lord, I am frail, I am weak, I cannot stand in my own strength. Which of us, if we're 
honest believers would say that we do not uh, get trapped and entangled by temptation, that we sin because we don't have the strength in ourselves to stand. Spurgeon says, I've seen many a professor, that is, a, someone who declares themselves to be a Christian, many a professor strong and mighty, and nothing seemed to move him. But I've seen the wind of persecution and temptation come against him, and I've heard him creak with murmuring, and at last have seen him break in apostasy, and he is laying along the ground a mournful specimen of what every man must become who makes not the Lord his strength, and who relies not upon the Most High." It's terrifying, is it not, how easily sometimes Satan can bring us down and the strongest of us, at least apparently, is very susceptible, very prone to stumbling and we would fall utterly if relying upon our own strength alone. And so, says Spurgeon, I imagine that there may be some of you who, when you consider these things, are ready to say, Sir, I am nothing. Then I shall reply, Ah, you are a young Christian. Others of you will say, Sir, I'm less than nothing. And I shall say, Ah, now you are an old Christian. For the older Christians get, the less they become in their own esteem, the more they feel their own weakness, and the more entirely they rely upon the strength of God. It's staggering, isn't it, to consider that the maturest Christians are not those who imagine themselves strong, but those who know themselves weak. So how is it that anybody gets to be an old Christian? How does anybody stand long enough in order to say, I have been in the way for so many years or perhaps even so many decades? And the answer comes in the second point. The great promise, as thy days, so shall thy strength be. And Spurgeon wants us now, as he often does, just to to turn this promise around in the light and to see how it glints as we consider it under the illumination of the Holy Spirit. First of all, it's a well-guaranteed promise. It hangs upon God himself. The omnipotent, that is the all-powerful God, has declared that this is so. And so the, the only thing that you would be draining is omnipotence by depending upon this promise and by definition omnipotence cannot be drained you you cannot reduce infinite power it is simply infinite always no matter how much you depend upon it no matter how much god dispenses it it is nevertheless for being poured out but also notice it's a limited promise as your days so shall your strength be You have to remember, says Spurgeon, that it's not according to your desires or your expectations, your your hopes, that you might have predicted that you would need a certain amount of strength or you might have wished that you had a certain amount of strength. No, God guides us both into the circumstances and provides us with the strength for them. Says Spurgeon, Many of God's people have a manufactory at the back of their houses in which they manufacture troubles, and homemade troubles, like other homemade things, last a very long while and generally fit very comfortably. Troubles of God's sending are always suitable, the right sort for our backs, but those that we make are of the wrong sort and they always last us longer than God's. Striking, isn't it, that the Lord both sends the troubles and sends the strength to bear up underneath them. And it is, furthermore, an extensive promise. 
Some days, says Spurgeon, are little things in our pocketbook, in our uh, diary, or whatever it may be. We have very little to put down, for there was nothing done of any importance. But some are big days, and I've known a big day, a day of great duties, when great things had to be done for God, too great it seemed for one man to do. And when great duty but was but half done, there came great trouble, such as my poor heart had never felt before. Now, Spurgeon's referring specifically to a, a terrible occasion in his own experience where uh, he had a, a tragedy. It was the, uh, the time when uh, a gang of thieves called out fire, fire in the, the music hall and created a stampede in which they'd be able to uh, pick some pockets and a number of people had died and Spurgeon's referring back to that horrible experience as far as I can tell. And his point is that though the trial was great, yet nevertheless so was the strength that was bestowed in order to sustain him through that trial. And he speaks of others who've been through great trials. Talks about Job, for example. Speaks of John Hus or Jerome of Prague. Speaks of Martin Luther. These men who faced unusual trials on distinctively difficult days, but then was then, then was God with them. That was the moment at which the Lord drew near to them. Any child of God can do what any other child of God has done, says Spurgeon, if God gives him the strength. You could not do what you're doing even now without God's strength, and you could do 10,000 times more if he should be pleased to fill you with his might. So whatever your days may hold, says Spurgeon, you have a God who has undertaken to provide strength for that day. And then, what a varying promise it is. Not that the promise itself changes, but it is adaptable. It adapts itself to all our changes. Whatever your days may contain, so shall your strength be. The Lord is able to ensure that you have just what you need for the particular moments which you will face. And Spurgeon again refers to himself. Um, he, he's aware and I think it's a good thing that he's aware uh, that there's perhaps uh, more of him in this sermon than there might otherwise be. And he, he doesn't want, he says, to seem egotistical by talking of the evidence he himself has received during the past week. But at the same time, he wants to record his praise to God, how sick he was when he was in the pulpit last Sunday. Uh, and yet here he is, uh, and he's able to do what God calls him to do. And it's given him more confidence. It's given him more encouragement. And then last of all, what a long promise this is. doesn't matter how old you grow. This promise will never outlive you to the very end of your days upon earth. Until you come into the eternal day, God has undertaken to supply you with the strength that you need for every day. And so Spurgeon brings then an inference. And again, I think it's worth noting, just in terms of the, the holy craft of the preacher, that Spurgeon's applications sometimes almost surprise you because you thought he was already doing it. And in a sense, he has been. When he talks about the richness of those promises, that it is well guaranteed, hanging upon the character and the strength of God himself, when it's limited uh, in the sense that um, you will have strength for the day and not 
then according to your own expectation or desire, when it's extensive, that it covers all possible bases, when it's varying, that it's adaptable to every possible circumstance, and that it is long in that it extends for as long as you will need it, Spurgeon has, in a sense, already been applying this text. He's already been pressing home these encouragements. He's already been instructing and teaching us. But now, as it were, he hammers it home. He, he pushes it that extra degree. And his inference to the children of the living God is simply, and perhaps quite shockingly, straightforward. Be rid of your doubts. Be rid of your trouble and your fear. Young Christians, do not be afraid to set forward on the heavenly race. You bashful Christians that, like Nicodemus, are ashamed to come out and make an open profession, don't be afraid. As your day is, so shall your strength be. Why need you fear? You're afraid of disgracing your profession. You shall not. Your day shall never be more troublesome or more full of temptation than your strength shall be full of deliverance. Well, sometimes one nail hit hard is the best way of fastening something. And that seems to be what Spurgeon is about here with regard to God's people. The simple application is, if this promise is true, or since this promise is true, the, the if there is not very conditional, since this promise is true, get rid of your doubts, get rid of your troubles, get rid of your fear. Why? Because this God has undertaken to provide the strength that you need in your weakness. And whether you think of your sufferings or your duties or your temptations or uh, whatever else it may be, God has given a promise that covers every possible eventuality. And therefore, it is disbelief for us to say, I cannot do what God calls me to do. I cannot bear what God calls me to bear. I cannot overcome what God calls me to overcome. I am not able to manage these things. I, I cannot advance the way I would wish to advance. And Spurgeon says, if God has promised strength for all of those things, then you ought to believe God and act appropriately. And you should take comfort from the fact that you are not going to fade and fail while God himself holds you up. There really is not much more to say to believers than that. And that can be very hard for some of us because we've learned perhaps to live with our doubts and our fears. We've learned to explain them away. We've learned to excuse them. We've learned to accept that they're just there. And Spurgeon is saying, have you considered that the root cause of your trouble may be your unbelief? Why do you need to fear when God has made such a promise to you? And so the comfort that we need to take is a proper comfort, but it also means that that comfort will take away our doubts, our troubles and our fears. And then an inference for those who do not belong to God. Your strength is decaying. You are graying old and growing old, and your old age will not be like your youth. Yes, you have strength now, but you're prostituting that strength. You're, you're selling it. You're abandoning yourself to the service of Satan, which you misuse that strength in the service of the devil. And your strength will depart from you, and you will not be able to last the course. 
your weakness will come upon you and you will have nowhere to turn. He says you need God now. Do not wait until you reap the harvest of your sins in the dreadful vintage of eternal wrath and find that the day of promise and the day of grace has passed you by. May God give us all grace, he says, so that when days and years are past, we all may meet in heaven. There are some people here, he says, that I've seen a great many times and I thought they would have been converted before now. I ask them one question. There are some of whom, them whom I sincerely respect, and it is this. What will you do in the swellings of Jordan? That is, what will you do in the day of your death, when death shall get hold upon you? What will you do then? May God help you to answer and prepare to meet him. Perhaps it's worth also pausing for a moment at the end of this sermon to note its simplicity and its straightforwardness as a whole, not just with regard to those closing uh, conclusions, those applications or inferences, but with regard to the sermon as a whole. Sometimes as preachers we're in danger of overcomplicating things. Uh, Now Spurgeon, a lover of the Puritans, manages to avoid some of the excesses of uh, Puritan sermon construction. This is a, a very straightforward outline. And yet there's something very insightful about it as well. You will notice that while the, the text is the, the foundation for everything he says, he's really looking at it through the lens of practical Christianity. He's drawing out these elements of it, the, the weakness that is hinted at or implied in the text. And so then asking the question, well, where then does a Christian see his or her weakness? When does a pilgrim see his or her frailty? And you can almost hear him turning it over in his mind. It's not that he's careless about the text itself. It's not that it, it lacks exegetical substance, but he's a preacher. And so he's moved beyond what we might call mere exegesis. And in doing that, we're not diminishing the importance of knowing what the text says. But he's already started to apply it. He's already thinking about what it means in practice. And so these four subheadings of duty and suffering and progress and temptation, he's asking, what is it about these things that shows us our weakness? And then that gives rise to the application of the second part that actually the promise applies so richly to just such seasons as those. And therefore, the promise itself is well guaranteed. And he's asking, why is that? Uh, In what way is it limited? As thy days, you can hear his understanding of the text informing the framework of his sermon. Then it's extensive for all the days that you have. He's really getting a lot out of the fact that this is as thy days. And the same again with the varying promise and the long promise. Really, all of those things are pulled out of the fact that these uh, this strength is supplied through all your days. And so he's not trying, I don't think, to beat this text thin. But by walking around it like this, by chewing it, by meditating upon it, by drawing down its spiritual nourishment into his bones, he's been able to create this very straightforward but but quite potent uh, sermon with this 
simple outline and this penetrating application. Now, the answer to that is not to do less of the spade work of trying to understand what any word or phrase of God's truth says. But we need to go beyond it if we're preachers. We need to stop and think, what does this actually mean for God's people? Meditation upon the text, prayerful consideration of the truth, will sometimes yield us much more sermonically than simply hammering our way through the actual words if that's as far as we will go. And so here's the fruit of prayerful, careful meditation upon the Word of God, and it's produced a sermon that is eminently practical, very straightforward, that pulls no punches, and yet brings both a very real challenge and therefore a very great comfort to the people of God. I'm Jeremy Walker, and you have been listening to From the Heart of Spurgeon, a podcast from Media Gratii. We would love other people to learn about these truths, so please leave us a review on your favourite podcast app. Thank you very much indeed for listening.